Is Ohio State the best team in the country? What happened to Quinn Ewers and Texas? And don't mind Oklahoma. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, good folk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to recap our 11 a.m. noon kickoff games, our 2.30 games, and really the biggest games on the calendar. We're going to talk about Alabama and Tennessee. Is that just Georgia or Thanos by any other name? want to talk a little bit about how it got dramatic down in Houston for Texas and what is going on with Quinn Ewers and what is going on with the University of Texas. I also want to talk a little bit about Oklahoma and its paltry 31-29 win. You know what? Y'all right. They ain't no good. They ain't, they ain't no good. We're, we're going to get into that. But first, the biggest game on the calendar for this Saturday was number seven Penn State at number three Ohio State. And the Buckeyes took care of business 22-12. Did not go the way that many envisioned it would go. But I got to say, I was impressed by Ohio State in this one. And I want to start with this. Under James Franklin, Penn State walked into the shoe 0-9 versus AP top 10 opponents. They moved on the road, and they moved to 0-10 on the road against AP top 10 opponents. But it was Ryan Day who really needed the win in this one. And I say that because going into this season, there was heat on Ryan Day's seat. I thought that was asinine and ridiculous as the man was a missed field goal away from basically being national champ in 2022. But Heading into this one, you could not afford to take a loss to Penn State at home and expect to contend for the Big Ten Championship, or at least it would be very, very difficult with a surging Michigan on the way. But Ryan Day, who needed the win, leaned on his defense to get things done. Here's what he had to say about that. No, I thought our defense played unbelievable. Lights out. You know, really shouldn't be putting him in that situation at the end of the game like that. I thought we, you know, we did a great job up front. We won the line of scrimmage. Our guys on the back end got their hands on passes, kept battling. Um, the defense won the game today, and they did an unbelievable job. They did do an unbelievable job. They've done the best job that I've seen an Ohio State defense do since 2019 when they had the Predator playing defensive end, handsome inside linebacker, because Chase Young was just that type of individual. But you get the point here. Ohio State finally has a defense that feels like it's national championship caliber. The Buckeyes showed that against Penn State, holding them to just 2.8 yards per play. But I was really interested on the money downs, right? Going into this game, who was going to win third down? Who was going to be able to run the football, if anybody at all? And to begin with, both defenses were playing lights out football. By the end of the first quarter, both the Ohio State offense and the Penn State offense had combined to go for just one of eight on third down. But while Ohio State found a way to move the ball, the Buckeye defense continued to absolutely control Penn State on the money downs. Again, it's kind of ridiculous that we got to take it this far, but we do. Penn State had thir 15 third down conversions before they converted one. The game was basically over when they got their first third down conversion of the entire day. One for 16 on third down. That came 16th attempt, and you're down 20 to 6 late in the fourth quarter. A lot of that had to do with Jim Knowles and that defense really not letting Drew Aller and those wide receivers do anything at all. These numbers are just awful for Drew Aller and great for Ohio State. I'll put it the way that Drew Aller put about his play. He said this about how did he play. He said, I sucked. 
And they said, why are you being so hard on yourself? He said, because I absolutely did. 18 of 42 for 191. You could see how he is not thrilled about that. Quietly, still a guy that hadn't thrown an interception all year and hadn't actually fumbled the football all year. But Penn State rushed for just 49 yards, and that was unexpected. I thought, if anything, Nick Singleton, Catron Allen, behind that offensive line, led by perhaps the first-round draft pick in Olu Fashionu, were going to be able to run the football because that's what they had been good at. But they got nothing and liked it. Judge Smale's style out here, 49 rush yards, but it's it's also being able to dial up a pass rush when you got them in those third and long situations because you've been able to stymie the run. And I was really just taking a look at that defensive line with Mike Hall Jr. and JT Tuimolau, and I was really impressed. Now, the most impressive play by that defense well, particularly that defensive line for me, was, again, JT Tuimaloal, who showed up in the fourth quarter of Penn State for a second straight year. It's becoming a meme for that dude. But on fourth and gotta have it, you got JTT lined up on Olu Fashionu, which is the way you draw it up if you're Penn State. We want our best player on their best player, and we're going to ask him to go beat us. And what did JTT do? But bull rush Fashionu right into Drew Aller's lap and Force in an incomplete pass. It was damn near an interception. That guy showed up big the way that that defense had been showing up big all day. This game was extremely tight, entirely too long for Ohio State fans because you're thinking if the Ohio State offense of even 2022, 2021, or 2020, 2019, take it all the way back to Ryan Day's first day on the job, showed up to play, you would expect them to have won this kind of a football game by three touchdowns because the defense has been so good. But the offense has an identity now. I thought it was going to be being balanced. No, I thought it was going to be the offensive line coming together. Not really. I thought it was going to be Travion Henderson, Maya Williams, hitting everybody for a lick every now and again. No, not at all. I thought perhaps it was going to be Kyle McCord throwing the football. I'm halfway right. He went 22 of 35 for 286 with two TDs. However... The guy that makes Ohio State a national championship caliber team wears 1-8 and plays wide receiver. All right, so I want to set this up because there was a sequence of plays, particularly one drive, that solidified for me who Marvin Harrison Jr. is. I'm going to set this up. So after Chop Robinson goes down with an injury, we got to see Ohio State come out of a long timeout and then pick up a procedural penalty, which absolutely made Ohio State fans blow a gasket because – you cannot do that. You can't pick up a procedural after a long time out like that. And then Curtis Jacob came up with what we thought was going to be a, game, a play that changed the game because he was able to get heat on Kyle McCord, strip that man, pick up the ball, and run it back. For all the world, it looked like a turn of the tide with Penn State taking a lead in a very tight football game only to see yellow laundry on the field in the secondary for Penn State. Come to find out, Kalen King could not guard Marvin Harrison Jr. We know this because he held him, held him going across the middle. That play saved Ohio State, not just six points, but got them the ball back and got them a new set of downs. But even then, they didn't look great. You brought in a guy like Devin Brown to try to get you an easy bucket at quarterback, maybe run that in. You pick up the stupid personal foul on him if you're Penn State. You give them another set of downs. And rather than just try to run the football in, which they did twice, we got to see Marvin Harrison Jr. set them up once again. That dude fought through defensive pass interference against Kalen King, who for all the world is going to be a first-round draft pick at corner, caught the football, put them in a position to get their second and uh, first, uh, first TD of the game and third score of the game. 
I have a hard time looking at that and going, Marvin Harrison Jr. is dictating Manny Diaz's defense because we're not looking at it as if Manny Diaz is being dictated his defense by what Marvin Harrison Jr. is capable of or doing. The way I look at this is you can't play man coverage, single coverage, I should say, against Marvin Harrison Jr. You have to have a safety over the top, which means you can't bring an eighth man down in the box, which means you're going to allow Ohio State to run the ball a little bit more than they should be able to because you're so terrified of what 1-8 can do. And if he can go to work on your best cornerback, your best defensive back, and he's making plays through penalties, there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. That just means Marvin Harrison Jr. is the guy that is quite literally swinging the pendulum in Ohio State's favor. And then it showed up in a really interesting way on the stat sheet. And I want to get to some of that, but I need to lay that on pretty thick here, guys. Marvin Harrison Jr. out on the numbers had more to say about what plays Ryan Day was calling and what plays Manny Diaz was calling than anybody else on the football field. It's been a very long time since we have seen a wide receiver do that north of the Mason-Dixon line, and not since 2020 have we seen a wide receiver do that at the level that Marvin Harrison Jr. is doing it. His name is Devontae Smith. He led Alabama to a national title. The Buckeyes ran the ball on that drive successfully, right? And another reason is because you have to have that safety high. But I thought it was more interesting what Ryan Day thought he needed to express to Fox Sports' Jenny Tapp just as he got done doing his interview, he came back because he had to say this on camera on national television. I just think what the standard he has set here, his work ethic, and what he means to Ohio State, it's about leaving a legacy behind. And we're only halfway through the season, so I'm not going there yet, but he's on his way. I'm proud of him. There's a lot to take away from those actions and what he had to say. I'm glad that he said it where Marvin could hear it and where we all could hear it and you could hear how comfortable Ryan Day is with dialing up plays for Marvin Harrison Jr. He even said early in that same interview that he stays up late at night trying to think of ways to get that dude open because he knows what they he means to their football team and why defensive coordinators are so terrified of him. Get into the stats a little bit on Marvin Harrison Jr. here for this day. He had over 100 yards receiving, 11 catches for 162 with a TD. That means he's got five 100-yard receiving games in Ohio State's last six which gives him 12 100-yard receiving games in his career, which means he passes Chris Olave for second most in school history, and he is two behind David Boston for the most 100-yard receiving performances in a single season by a Buckeye, and that's just 14. We still got six games, or excuse me, seven games for Ohio State left to play, right? Like, it's, it's getting into the territory where you got to start talking about Marvin Harrison Jr., no disrespect, all love to my guy, Gus Johnson. I'm just going to put this out here. That man is not a Maserati. I'm a car guy. I'm a a, a car guy. A Maserati will break down on you. A Maserati is untrustworthy. A Maserati has been untrustworthy since the 1950s when the last time it won Formula One. Okay. What Marvin Harrison Jr. is, is a McLaren Senna GTR LMS. Okay. For those of y'all that didn't read the brochure, like I did. That's 800 horsepower of the just five single cars on earth that can do what that Senna does. They only made five of them. That's how rare this man is. He ain't ain't something you get off the factory line. He ain't something that you can put in my garage and I can make a little bit quicker for you. It is custom. They don't make them like him. 
And I get to say this over and over again because he just continues to be that good. He showed us who he was last year when Jackson Smith and Jigba went down early. We got to see what Marvin Harrison Jr. was actually capable of. And now this year, he looks like the first Bolitnikoff Award winner at Ohio State since Terry Glenn. But also, you have to start talking about him in the Heisman Trophy conversation. You just have to. What he means to one of the best football teams on earth is what Devontae Smith meant to Alabama in their undefeated national championship year. We don't get to say that too often about wide receivers because it's a position that has been so dependent on what the quarterback can do or even what the offensive line will allow, let alone what the defense is going to allow. Usually you catch a bunch of passes. It's because people are comfortable leaving you in one-on-one matchups. Nobody's comfortable doing that with Marvin Harrison Jr. And yet and still he's putting up these gaudy numbers against top 10 opponents. Number seven Penn State was undefeated until they ran up on the Buckeyes, until they ran up on Marvin Harrison Jr. I'm looking at this and I'm asking myself, is Ohio State one of the two best teams in the country, if not the best team in the country? I'm going to figure it out, and I'm going to tell you right here on the number one college football show Sunday when we do our rankings reaction show. But rest assured, I got to give it my serious brain. We got some other games we got to get through first, notably Duke, Florida State, USC, Utah, and Michigan, Michigan State. We'll talk about those on the ranking show on Sunday right here on the number one college football show. For Penn State, though, this season becomes about winning on November 11th against the Michigan Wolverines. Now, you got to hope that both Michigan and Ohio State somehow fumble their perfect season so far so that you can get into the Big Ten Championship because it feels like the Big Ten Champion is going to get a college football playoff team just because it's that strong, particularly because of teams like Penn State, Rutgers, who moved to 6-2, and two, by the way. Rutgers is bowl eligible in October, guys. But it's more about looking at James Franklin at this point, who is 84 and 37 all time at Penn State, but is 3 and 16 against AP top 10 opponents and 0 and 10 on the road, 13 23 versus AP top 25 opponents throughout his career, 2 and 13 on the road throughout his career, which means big game James ain't been able to win the big game. And the big game for Penn State every year, just two, just two, Michigan. And Ohio State. Last year, they had an opportunity. JTT had one of the best games that anybody's had in the last 20 years to spoil that. This year, they could not get an offensive rhythm to save their lives. And I'm not sure that that's about them. I think that's more about Jim Knowles and that defense in year two. Everybody has said for years, Jim Knowles in year two, that's when the defense starts to kick in. That's what happened Oklahoma State. That seems to be what is happening at Ohio State. You didn't have a Denzel Burke ready to go for this one, but you know what you did have? You had a Jordan Hancock who was absolutely putting the shackles on those wide receivers for Penn State. Josh Proctor coming through making plays as well. I mentioned JTT. I have Michigan as the number one team in the country and at worst number two, which means that it ain't in Penn State's favor when they got to play Michigan on November 11th. And they also got to get into the space where they don't just focus on that one game because that's how you lose others. Remember, it's a team that won the Rose Bowl last year. but somehow. Took L's to both Ohio State and Michigan. That's how deep this conference is. And I'm sure that they're one of the teams that can't wait for USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington to join the Big Ten, not just so they could see how they be living, but because they might actually end up in the Big Ten title game against Ohio State or Michigan 
even with a loss to Ohio State and Michigan, because we're going to do away with divisions where we got to look over the Big Ten West and go, who's the sacrificial lamb over there this year? Because it's just so deep over there. Again, it's not just Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan. Rutgers is six and two, man. Maryland is a good football team. Those are all teams in the Big Ten East. It's kind of on and popping over there. I feel bad for Penn State fans because I don't know what else you got to do here. I mean, you're a good football team and you've been a good football team. You're capable of making a New Year's Six game and winning a New Year's Six Bowl. Just haven't been able to beat Ohio State and Michigan. Do you want to get worse than this? Absolutely not. Is there better than this? Yes, but where? For who? For what? I understand getting trolled with your own chant inside the shoe. Ain't everybody's cup of tea. It takes a different kind of heart to stay in that stadium and let people do that to you. But you're a good football team. You got one loss. You have an opportunity to still salvage the rest of the season and get back into the Big Ten title game. You're just going to need a little help, and you're going to have to take care of what you can take care of. Win what you got left, and then let's see if Michigan and Ohio State can withstand the pressure of being at the top of that conference, let alone the top of the top 25. Let's talk about another team that couldn't stay long inside the top 10 till they ran into something called Texas and Tuscaloosa, and it looked like it was going to happen again when number 11 Alabama hosted number 17 Tennessee. But the Tide, like Thanos, is inevitable. They win this game 34-20, to 20, but it, it certainly didn't look like they were going to do it at the start. Like, at the first half, I was going, where was this Tennessee team against Florida? This is the Tennessee team that I thought I was going to see from the jump. And you know what? I don't know that they played a better first quarter with Joe Milton as the quarterback. Milton completed his first nine passes. He was 10 of 13 for 112 and a TD in the first quarter alone. And they had a 13 to zero lead by the end of the first quarter. By the end of the first half, Tennessee had put up 275 total yards. I mean, at one point, they ran 29 offensive plays in one quarter of football and forced a turnover on defense. It looked for all the world like Tennessee was going to be the first team to double up Nick Saban in back-to-back seasons since Ole Miss 2014-2015 and an accomplishment that they had done 20 years ago, 2003 and 2004, against Alabama. But the second half was so terribly different from the first for both of these teams. At halftime, we're looking at UT leading Alabama in Tuscaloosa 20-7. And then the third quarter, a different football team for both sides came out to play some ball. Milton, who went 16-22 for 175 with two TDs in the first half, could not get his team back into the end zone. A UT rushing attack that had over 100 yards at the half couldn't move the football. And then Alabama with Jalen Milrow, who couldn't get out of his own way in the first half, absolutely starts putting together drives. Alabama outscored Tennessee 27-0 to in the second half alone. Nick Saban walked into the post-game press conference and said, well, the second half was a lot of fun, guys, obviously. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. If you're a Bama fan, you got to smoke your cigar this time, but I thought it was really interesting to watch how the drives played out for each one of these teams in the second half. Tennessee's first five drives in the second half resulted in four punts and a turnover. The tied first four drives in the second half, two TDs and two field goals made. Will Riker extends his lead as the SEC's all-time leading scorer. Nick Saban, with a competent kicker, is dangerous. We said this for years. Seems like if you got the kicker, everything else is going to find its way. Alabama coming back from a 14-point deficit down 14. I just – that also got my attention because I'm going, haven't they done this more than once? And it turns out they had. They are 3-1 and one this year when trailing at halftime against anybody. The one is Texas. You know who else gets on my nerves 
because they trail at halftime against teams they're supposed to be beating? Georgia. So is Alabama just Georgia in different clothes? I think so. At this point, I think Alabama and Georgia are going to make the SEC championship game. And if Georgia's undefeated and Alabama beats them, probably going to see those two teams get at least a wink and a nod, as they have in years past, to the college football playoff because I don't really see anything between them at this point. Georgia's not as dominant as it was in 2022 by a stretch. I don't know that it's as good as it was in 2021. But Alabama, I think with the one loss, has everybody seeing them pretty clearly as opposed to, I don't know, man, they feel like paper tigers. They feel like somebody somewhere is going to trip them up. And if the Tennessee team that showed up in the first quarter against Alabama does, shows up against Georgia, maybe Tennessee is the one to try to get that win against them. Right now, I don't I don't see a difference right now, right? Which is another way of saying between Georgia at one in the AP and Alabama at 11 in the AP, we got about 11, to even 12 teams here that we could see in the college football playoff. I don't think all those teams are capable of winning the national championship, but you get my point here. Point is simple. Alabama is not as bad as we think, and Georgia is not as good as we think. That ought to terrify Georgia because nobody's terrified of you. You know, I know Brock Bowers had the tightrope surgery, and I hope he's back earlier than uh, he's supposed to be, I should say. But I don't look at that team outside of him and feel terror. Malachi Starks is a dude, right? But so is Caleb Downs. I just look at an Alabama team that I think can match up. And I think as they continue to play football games, they're going to build more confidence. So is Jalen Milrow, for that matter. And Jalen Milrow is operating at the level that I know he's capable. Yeah, Alabama could win the SEC title game, which is another way of saying Alabama could win the national championship. And it's all there for them to play. For Tennessee, it's tough because that's two losses in the conference, one against Florida, one against Alabama. Right now, it feels like you're playing for a New Year's Six Bowl spot, playing to be the second best team in the SEC East right now, but that's even going to be tough given what the SEC East has been and especially what Missouri was doing. I looked at Missouri was up 24 to three against South Carolina. And my first thought was, I hope Shane Beamer doesn't kick anything. But Tennessee going to be there, I think, at the end to try to play spoiler Alabama, continuing to build, continuing to get this thing right, continuing to look like a Nick Saban football team. And that's, that's bad news for everybody in the SEC West. They got left to play, notably LSU. All right, let's go on. Number six, Oklahoma survives Central Florida, 31 to 29. So my first thought was, all right, that's one trap game down. Oklahoma came in this thing a three-touchdown favorite and looked like one to start the game. I mean, Nick Anderson caught a TD pass 29 yards, and the reason I say 29 yards is his 29 yards were eight times as many yards as the entire Central Florida offense through its first four drives which ended in punts and amassed a total offensive yardage total of three. But that didn't last long because by halftime it was 17 up. And it was 17 up because this dude named R.J. Harvey decided to take everything so personal. You know what I'm saying? And then John Rice Plumley, who I was talking about, couldn't complete more than 53% of his passes against Power 5 competition, decided today is the day that he's going to throw 8 of 12 for 135 with a TD in the first half. Javon Baker, who was at Oklahoma and transferred to Central Florida, had a nerve to take a TD to the house and then blow a kiss at Owen Field. I see you. Get your gangster on, but I hope you could hold on to it. Turns out they could for just a little while, but not long enough. Oklahoma couldn't run the ball, which is nothing new. It still vexes me, and that really contributed to Central Florida being able to get the ball back and make plays. John Rice Plumley again, 
operating. And because he was operating, R.J. Harvey and Townsend could do what they wanted to in the run game. I was really impressed by that dude because he could get to the edge and he could beat people man-to-man one-up. I'm worried about Zach Schmidt, who missed two field goals that he probably shouldn't have missed. Same man that missed field goal that probably put the game out of reach for Texas earlier than it should have. And now i got to wonder if the kicker got the yips. And even Oklahoma needs a kicker. We ain't exactly got Will Reichert over there. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, we ain't got no Austin Seibert kicking anymore. Zach Schmidt's going to have to come on with the come on because it's going to be on his leg more often than we would like it to be for the rest of the year. But again, Oklahoma's down 23-16 at one point in this game. And then Jeff Levy start calling acute plays and said, hey, Dylan, can you go win me the football game? Can you go do that for me? And Dylan said, hey, coach, I got you in the Dylan Gabriel Bowl because you'll know that he played quarterback at Central Florida before transferring to Oklahoma with sort of a sinus sniff of UCLA before he got to OU. Sorry about you, UCLA. Gabriel finished 25 of 38 for 253 with three TDs and one interception. Drake Stoops got waylaid and, uh, you know, tip drill after that. But Nick Anderson emerged again in the absence of Andrew Anthony, and that's huge. Five catches for 105 yards and two TDs. Man, it's a touchdown machine, kind of like Marvin Mims a couple years ago. But you know what? They they only won by two. You know what? You're you right. You're absolutely right. Oklahoma ain't no good. How do you win by just two when you are supposed to win by three TDs? How do you let John Rice Plumlee, RJ Harvey, and Javon Baker eat you alive, tear you up? How do you let that happen? How do you give up damn near 400 yards of offense to Gus Malzahn, the Central Florida team that ain't won no Big 12 game since joining the Big 12? At home, I might add. How do you expect that team to be any good? You know, you know, right? You're right. They're just 7-0. and 7-0 after going 6-7 and last year. But you're right. Hell, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm just a homer. You know, I'm just an outlaw in an outlaw state. You know, I'm just a dude in a flyover country state. Don't nobody you ain't got no directs nowhere. You heard me say this before, but I'm just a single black man who started making videos on his iPhone 12, cutting them up in iMovie in an efficiency apartment that lucked into a job at Fox Sports. That's what I am. I don't know ball. They just handing out national college football analysts to anybody that asked for it, just like they're handing out seven and zero to anybody that asked for it, you know. But you know what? I did all that on a laptop. That had less memory, couldn't have less memory if it had dementia, but I'm here before you, just like Oklahoma at 7-0. Penn State, they lost. USC lost. Texas lost. Alabama lost. Oregon lost. A lot of teams lost. A lot, 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 lot of teams. Got that one L. Got them two Ls. Notre Dame. Got them two L. Tennessee. But Oklahoma's 7-0. You know what? Don't mind Oklahoma. Don't mind me. Going to mind my little business. With this 90,000 YouTube subscribers that show up to watch us here, to hang out with us here, be on the live show, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it moving. Okay. Oklahoma got Kansas. That's the big noon game next week. We're going to advance it right here on the number one college football show on Wednesday. We're going to talk about it a little bit on Saturday. And then in a couple of weeks, Oklahoma State, it's your turn. It's your turn. I'm already fired up for Bedlam. I'm already fired up. We, we got too much going on here. But that's what Central Florida was about. Get past this trap game. Okay. Go to a really good football team in Kansas. See what you can't do against them. But you know what? Don't mind Oklahoma. Don't do that at all. You know who didn't mind Oklahoma? Texas. Texas got one loss. Texas coming off a bye, just like Oklahoma. How are you bad off a bye? Well, turns out number eight, Texas, 
got just what Central Florida was given to Oklahoma. They survived Houston 31 to 24. I got to tell you, I wasn't really watching this game to start because I saw Texas was up 21-0. I was like, uh-oh, all right. There, there's the team that beat Alabama. There's the team that we thought could contend for a college football playoff spot for the first time in school history. And Houston said, no, you got you, you forgot, RJ. We hate, 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 hate Texas. Sold out for this game in Houston. Because Houston can't stand Austin, Texas. Houston football especially can't stand Texas. But you know what? The Houston boys seem to embody that. Donovan Smith went for damn near 350 against Pete Kwiatkowski's defense, getting what he wanted. Matthew Golden coming up with great TD catches. Had them in position to try to win this game late when Quinn Ewers goes down with an injury. Malik Murphy comes in there, gets them that TD drive to win the game. I love his fake there at the end there for Jonathan Brooks, right? Oh, excuse me, Cedric Baxter, CJ Baxter. He stood that pose a long time. He just let the, the cameraman thought that. Malik Murphy still had the ball in his hands. By the time he figured out, Sergey Baxter was in the end zone, which means it's a really great fake. But I kind of want to talk about OU, excuse me, OU, OU and what they did to Texas, but also what Houston represents for Texas before we get to Quinn Ewers and, and just what that injury is, because I really got to, got to fill y'all in on this one, okay? So Houston and Texas have played just five times since 1953, you feel like that would be a natural rival for the University of Texas. Oh, it was. Oh, it was. Until it was not. So 1968, Texas, number one team in the country, playing Houston, who signed a player named Elmo Wright. Player wanted to play at Texas, but Daryl Royal didn't recruit Elmo Wright to Texas. Then Elmo Wright put it on Texas, and that game ended in a 2020 tie. And the Texas boosters would never let Daryl Royal forget it, okay? You can't have a tie to Houston as the number one team in the country. You'll also know that Texas is the last program to field an all-white team and win a national championship. That was 1969. So you can see how in 1968, the only thing that was black about Texas football was spikes they was wearing. Needless to say, Elmo wrote, or Elmo Wright chose to take that personally. So after that, Daryl Royal... Never scheduled Houston again. <laughs> so it's been 20 years since Texas and Houston have played each other, even as Texas produced the first black quarterback, excuse me, Texas. Houston produced the first black quarterback Heisman winner in Andre Ware in a year where Houston wasn't even playing on national television, 1989. I'm saying it goes kind of deep here, right? Goes back to Houston wanting to win so bad, they run a split beer. You know, Bill Yeoman out there handing out the envelopes, letting everybody know what's really good. Meanwhile, Texas been underperforming most years, even when they had Earl Campbell, right? Even when they had Ricky Williams, they got the one national championship with Vince Young. But basically since 1979, 74, you got, yeah, you got to take about 50 years since in between there, Texas has been good. And Houston has continued to build and build. They went to the Southwest Conference. They got busted down. They worked their way back up in the American. Now they're in the Big 12, and they wanted to give Houston the business in the worst way, which gets me back to Quinn Ewers going down late in the fourth quarter. I saw this play on the replay, and I got to see Quinn Ewers lower his shoulder and try to go pick up a first down. 
I, I gotta, I gotta say, son, son, you play quarterback. Why aren't you sliding? Why are you trying to square up a defender? Because as a defender, the only thing I want to do is get a clean hit on a quarterback. Because he only going to try to call me for anything else. And you gave this man every opportunity to try to wrap you up and take you out the ball game with a legal hit. And that's exactly what he did. He wrapped you up. You injured your shoulder. And now you got to deal with the Cougar mascot trying to dap you up on the way out. That's where you at. So now you bring Malik Murphy in there. And yeah, you get the win here. But now we got to ask... What's going on with Quinn Ewers and his shoulder, for which I'm sure we'll get a little bit of clarity in a little while, but whether or not he's going to be good to go for the rest of the season remains to be seen. That also could bode well for Malik Murphy, who I think has been biding his time waiting on an opportunity here. Still, Quinn Ewers is scarily efficient. 23 or 29 for 211. When they weren't able to run the football well, he was able to complete passes, and that was really kind of staggering to see that this Houston defense was doing such a good job on guys like Jonathan Brooks in that run game. But Texas nearly lost an opportunity to secure a spot in the Big 12 title game because, yeah, okay, Kansas is Kansas. And Oklahoma State's still surging, though, right? Baylor actually picked up a win against Cincinnati. Like, it feels like it's beginning to tighten up a little bit. That accordion is starting to get a little tighter toward the middle, and you just can't afford to take an L like they were about to at Houston. But they survived. They win that game 31-24. to I think... This is a teachable game for Texas, but I got, ooh, I, I, man, I'm telling you, I couldn't wait to see what Texas posters were going to post on a pseudonym on Texas message boards after a loss to Houston. But now I can't wait to see it because, hey, they're going to feel in their feelings right now because they don't think they should ever lose to Houston. They don't think Houston is any good, and they should win by way more than seven points, even if Houston is a good football team. I also wanted to see Dana Hogerson not call a sprint out for Donovan Smith or try to pick up fourth and inches. On fourth and inches, Sneak the football, run QB power, run the football. Don't run, don't call no sprint out. Then you ain't got to fall to your knees and hammer the turf. Then, then you ain't got to feel bad about calling that play for a dude that was out there spinning it and for a run game that was out there getting it. You know, I wanted to see them get in a position where they got to go for two and all these things where Dana Hovison did that when he was at West Virginia against Texas on the road, but it wasn't to be in this game. I think for Houston, you learn that you're a good football team. You learn that. You're damn near a great football team. You just couldn't finish it at the end. There's more that in the wait, or there's more down the road, not in the waiting, but down the road for Houston in this season. I think they're another team that's continuing to show their strength. Donovan Smith played an outstanding football game. I dare say it was best performance that I've seen from Donovan Smith since he got to Houston for sure, but also probably taking it back to his time at Texas Tech where he wasn't ever the full-time starter. And for Texas, wake up, w- wake up. Wake up because everybody's hunting you just like everybody is hunting Oklahoma. And if you want to get in the college football playoff, you need to know that in every single game you play. It's not to say that they don't, but man, it sure looked like they were having a hard time against Houston. All right. Tomorrow on the number one college football show, we're going to react to the AP top 25. And I'm going to show you my top 25. Still got to do some moving and shaking at the top. See who's good. See who's not. Going to talk about USC, Utah. Going to talk about Michigan, Michigan State. And I'm going to talk about Duke and Florida State also on the number one college football show right here Sunday afternoon. All right. Our number one leads of screening are Jack, Co- oh, excuse me. Jack Coakley and Torrin Westfall. I had a blank there. Kiara Santana is our production assistant. Chaz Boulay is our technical director. Now Owen brings us live. Catherine Cordaggi is our executive producer. Our lead producer is Tyler Wojak. I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all tomorrow. Deuces.